Open your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 15, and we continue our journey into the Psalms through the summer weeks, and we have uh, just a few more messages left before we will turn our attention to the Gospel of John. And so here we find ourselves in Psalm 15. And the Psalm 15 has no superscription to it other than the fact that it is simply a Psalm of David, and so we cannot identify particularly the period of David's life that this psalm would have been written. Psalm 24 is a parallel psalm, and it contains many of the same ideas, many of the same words and phrases. But when the scholars have evaluated the psalm in light of David's life, they seem to think that 2 Samuel 6 would be the most likely place that David would have written this psalm. As a part of Israel's history, the ark had been gone for nearly 100 years when it was taken away by enemy invaders. So it had been separated from the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. It had been separated from the tabernacle and from other places of worship when it was in captivity to enemy invaders. Now David is in the possession of the Ark after defeating the Philistines. And most would suggest that David is likely now moving the Ark to its next resting place. And as he is doing that, he is giving great consideration to what it means to be able to stand in the presence of the Lord. It was important to have the ark in its rightful place as the nation of Israel was getting ready to return the ark to their place of worship. And so it is assumed that one would naturally ask the question, who can draw near to God and who can worship Him in His dwelling place? So this psalm describes the expectation of what it looks like to walk with God and to be able to stand in His presence. Now, what we also need to be very clear about is that this is not a prescription for how one is to be saved, but it is instead a description of the life that one would live who professes to be saved. Now, in the Old Testament, there was not a clear and well-developed of salvation by faith, but we do know that the saints of old were justified by faith. In fact, Abraham was declared righteous by faith even before the law was written. And if you go forward and look in Hebrews chapter 12, you'll find the great hall of faith, all of those Old Testament individuals who were to be righteous before God. Not by the lives they lived or what they did, but because they had faith. So make sure that we're clear on this, that this is the description of the life of the saved and not a prescription for someone to be saved because we cannot earn or work or deserve our salvation based upon how we live. That also means that we are not free to live our lives any way we, any way we prefer simply because we profess to be saved. So here's what these seven verses say to us. And in our outline, you'll see that there are three sections that this will be divided into. So we begin in verse 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, he does no evil, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. So we begin with the question, 
The question that we see in verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in Your tent? Who may dwell on Your holy hill? Now, this appears to be two separate questions when in fact it's one question stated in two different ways. And what we're going to do to understand this is we're going to focus on the four words that are critical in this first verse. The first word that we want to look at is the word abide. The word abide in the Old Testament means to sojourn as a stranger. We often think of abiding as a permanent resting place. It's not in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it describes the life of one who continues to move from place to place. And so in this context, to abide means to sojourn. But then they add to that the second key word, and that is the word dwell. That word dwell means to reside or to settle down. And so who may dwell, excuse me, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, the temporary nature of being in God's presence as they are traveling, and the permanent nature of being in God's presence as the tabernacle is eventually going to be in a single place when a temple is eventually built. So while they are technically different words, they're being used synonymously here. So these two words identify the person. It answers the question of who. The individual who knows God and is in relationship with God is the one who is going to abide with Him and dwell in His holy place. And what's important for us to recognize that not only in the New Testament era that we are in, but also in the Old Testament era that this was written in, not all who claim to know God and to be in relationship with God necessarily are. Not all who are of the nation of Israel are true Israelites. And Paul would explain this in Romans chapter 9. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel. And what Paul articulates for us here in the book of Romans is that just because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham or back to David or back to any other saint of old, you must still be in a personal relationship with Christ. You must be in a personal relationship with Yahweh, who is the father of all, the father of Abraham, the father of Moses, and the father of the patriarchs. It answers the question of who. Now, the second two words that we want to focus on here is the word tent, which is the tabernacle, and that is known as, we understand that to be the temporary dwelling place of God. And if you remember your Bible history, the tabernacle was created after the nation of Israel exited out of Egypt, and God gave them excruciatingly specific details about how the tabernacle was to be built. The size, the divisions, the ornaments, how the priests were going to dress. Everything was very strictly described to them. So this tent is the tabernacle. The second word here is the holy hill. The holy hill is Mount Zion. It is also referred to as the city of David. As David has conquered the Philistines and as he is spreading the territory of the nation of Israel, it is decided that God's temple is to be built on the holy hill, this permanent dwelling place of God. And so these two words identify the location. So when you ask the question, is who may dwell and who may abide, it is the person 
who knows God in the location is going to be in the place where God Himself dwells. Now, the tent was a temporary place of worship for the nation of Israel. It was portable and movable just as the nation of Israel moved from from place to place. And so this tent represents the dwelling place of God. And do you remember what was the centerpiece of the tabernacle? The centerpiece of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, and it was thought to be the very place where God Himself would sit. The Holy Hill is the city of Jerusalem, also known as the city of David, which David captured in 2 Samuel 5, and where he was transporting the ark to in 2 Samuel 6. And this would become the permanent temple, the, excuse me, the permanent location of where the temple would be built. It would be the centerpiece of their worship. And what do you think would be the centerpiece of this permanent temple that was going to be built? It is, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, thought to be the metaphorical place where God Himself would dwell. So here's the question. Who is the one who abides with God and who will dwell in His presence? Who will stand in the... Excuse me. Who is the one who stands in the presence of God? This is the question that we see rephrased out of verse 1. That's an important question for us to be able to answer. Another way that we could ask that question is who are the true children of God? Who are the ones that will dwell with God for all eternity in His true dwelling place, heaven itself? One thing that occurs to me as we look at this question and the importance of this question is it's a terrible thing to have a question asked and not be able to find the answer. Isn't that right? You go to the doctor and you've got something wrong and you say, what's wrong? And they say, I really don't know. I'm going to run a bunch of tests and I'm going to do my best to figure it out. And they come back to you and say, we don't know what's wrong. You've got a very valid and legitimate question, but you've got no answer. Well, it's great news when we know that the answer to this important question is given to us. So this answer here, number two, there are ten individual expectations or actions of the true worshiper, of the one who will stand in the presence of God. They are divided into two groups of positive and negative actions. This is what the true worshiper is to do and what he is not to do as a part of his relationship with God. Now, it's important, at least from my perspective, to remember that no one is perfect. It is absolutely impossible to be perfect in the execution of these actions that we see listed here. They are nonetheless to be present in the lives of those who claim to know God through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. So this first group has three of these actions that are a part of it. The first action here is the one who stands in the presence of God. It is he who has godly character. Verse 2a, he who walks with integrity. That word walk means how we live our lives. That word integrity is often translated as blameless. This does not mean sinless because no one is sinless. And we should never place the standard of sinless perfection on ourselves or on anybody else because sinless perfection is a fallacy. Just as we read in Philippians this morning, 
Paul says, not that I have yet laid hold of it. One thing I do is I keep pressing forward toward the high mark. And that is to be a part of our daily execution and our relationship with God. It is not the expectation that we will achieve sinless perfection, but we continue to pursue it. To be blameless or to walk in integrity means that we have solid character, that we are not divided in our allegiance to God. To walk with integrity then defines who we are in our heart of hearts, which is then expressed in how we live our lives. Henry Ford said that integrity is what you will do when no one is looking. Godly character is manifested in our lives when there is no one else around. It really describes who we are in our heart of hearts. We are to have a mindset to please God first, to live our lives according to His standards and expectations, to be outwardly what we profess to be internally. Excuse me, I got the reverse. To be internally what we profess to be outwardly. So to have godly character means to be wholly devoted to the Lord. It is to have a heart that is devoted to Him and then living our lives as He has commanded us to live. This is what it means to have godly character, to walk in integrity. Number two, the one who will stand in the presence of the Lord is he who has Godly conduct. Verse 2b says, not only to walk in integrity and works righteousness. The result of godly character is godly conduct. Works here means what we do. How we live our lives and then here what we do. Now, righteousness is a dynamic term It is used in the description of God. We say God is righteous. God is the epitome of righteousness. But the word righteousness also describes man in his relations with other man. So the righteous man does what is right in relation to his walk with God. He lives in accordance with God's expectations. And this is reflected in what we do. We read in Colossians chapter 1, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. There is the positional reality that because we have been washed in the blood of Christ, because His righteousness has been impugned to us. We stand before God righteous, yet we are still compelled and commanded to pursue this life of holiness and blamelessness, knowing that one day we will be presented to the Son and we will give an account for our lives. So, we have this obligation, this responsibility because of our salvation, to live our lives in such a way that we're being freed from our old way of sinful living and are being conformed to the image of Christ, reflecting outwardly His righteousness that has been given to us and the newness of our spirit that was recreated through our salvation and through our regeneration. Our conduct is to be righteous 
as God is righteous. But since righteousness also describes man in his relationship with other man, godly conduct applies to what we do to one another. Now, we would call this the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We're all familiar with that. But how often do we live by that standard? Do we live by that expectation that we treat others, we talk to others, we do to others as we would have them do to you? But you see, in Christian living, it isn't called the golden rule. It's called the one another's. Are you familiar with the one another's? Have you heard of the one another's in the Bible? In the New Testament, there are over 50 one another verses that describe how we are to relate with one another. We are to love one another. We are to encourage one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to be at peace with one another. We are to tolerate one another. We're to be kind to one another. Serve one another. Be devoted to one another. Comfort one another. Pray for one another. This describes a kind of godly conduct, the righteousness that is to be defined by the lives that we live. Our conduct is to reveal the righteousness of Christ to those around us, not not to repulse them from the life of Christ who has saved us and lives within us. Our lives are to be a magnet that draws people to Him, not something that is ugly and detestable and pushes them away from Him. Have you known professing Christians? who tarnish the witness of Christ by how they treat one another, the things that are said to one another. So for us, in the New Testament understanding of what is being expressed through the psalm, we have this righteous expectation that we are to reflect who He is and how we relate and treat one another. Thirdly, we have who will stand in the presence of the Lord, the one who has godly thinking. Verse 2 See, and speaks truth in his heart. Now, this is a little bit more difficult to get to because of the words and the alternate translations that we have for some of these words. But to speak the truth in his heart, heart here is the seat of our being. It is our soul. It is our true self. Notice that we're speaking truth in his heart. It isn't speech that comes from our heart out of our heart. It isn't speech to one another. That gets addressed a little bit later in the psalm. But it's the idea that we are speaking truth in our hearts. It means to have our mind focused on the truth. As our character is made new by the work of Christ in our lives, as our conduct is refined through the truth of God's Word, Our attitude here, what our life is really built and centered on, is expressed in the speaking truth to our heart. Our mind is focused on what is true so that you and I will do what is right. When our minds are not focused on what is true, then you and I are not likely to do what is right. How often do we get ruled or dominated, or heavenly influenced by our feelings or by our thinking. 
So the goal here in speaking truth in our heart is to find consistency with the character and the conduct in such a way that our attitudes are so entrenched in the truth of God's Word that it has an outward impact on not only our conduct, but it greatly improves the character that we have been given by God. We read in Colossians again, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. There is this upward focus that we are to have in our mind. It is a constant choice that we make to focus on the truth of who God is, on the truth of God's Word and what He has said, and the truth of what you and I are to do as the children of God. Our minds are not to be set on fulfilling our sinful desires, but rather on pleasing God. Have you ever been wronged? Have you ever been offended? And you spent time thinking about how am I going to get back How am I going to get revenge? How will I make sure that they get what I think is coming to them? And lo and behold, after you have fixated on that for a matter of days or perhaps weeks, the opportunity comes and when it's in front of you, you absolutely pounce on it and then you clap yourself on the back and say, ha ha, I got back. I gave to them what they deserve. You see, that takes place in our lives when we allow our minds to be focused on the temporary, on the earthly, on the here and now, not on the eternal and the spiritual. We're not devising sinful actions or sinful plans. Why? Because our minds are set on the truth of who God is and what God has said. We're making no room for the flesh because our minds are set on Him. We'll read this very shortly in one of our worship services in Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. How do you dwell on something? You focus your mind in such a way that it dictates and dominates how we feel and what we do instead of being dominated by what we think, or what we feel. So to speak truth in our heart is to set our minds, our attitudes, on the truth of God's Word. This instruction is given so that we will then do the right thing, allowing our actions to reflect our new character, which was recreated in the image of God and His righteousness. So these are the first three things that we are told to do. These are the first three positives, the first group of positives. Uh, So now we set our mind, our attention rather, on the next group, which is three negatives, the things that the one who stands in the presence of God is not to do. Number four, he does not gossip. Verse 3a reads, he does not slander with his tongue. Now slander today means something a little different from what it means In the Old Testament, slander today is defamation, it's insult, it's malign, it's to smear, it's considered libel, it's not necessarily true. It's things that are rumored, it's things that are exaggerated in order to make someone's reputation less than it is in an effort to hurt them 
or to bring harm to them. Slander means literally in the Hebrew to go about on foot. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? What does that mean, to go about on foot? Well, it carries the idea of tripping over your tongue. It means that you're saying something that you shouldn't say. So to slander someone in the Old Testament example here is to say something that ought not be said. It's not to be consistent with godly character or conduct or attitude. So we read an example of this in the New Testament, James 3.6. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by what? By hell. The unrestrained tongue, what is said absent from godly character and godly conduct and being set on the truth of God's Word, has the potential to bring incredible damage to the lives of other people. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You heard that one? Did you ever say that as a kid? Well, that's the biggest lie you probably ever said. Words kill. Words wound and they scar and they bruise. Words deflect truth. It distorts and deceives and leads astray. We need to be incredibly careful with the things that we say. Our words can do far more damage than we can imagine. And we are often willing to say incredibly hurtful things, even though we may not be willing to do hurtful things. And we therefore create a scale that that's really not as sinful as saying to somebody, I can get in the hallway in the corner and point my finger and you so and so and you good for nothing, blah, blah, blah. Hey, that's, that's bad. That's just as bad as actually doing something physical to somebody that has offended you or hurt you. When talking to one another and when talking about other people, here are a couple of suggestions and we would all do well to remember these things. Is what I'm saying confidential? Don't repeat it. Don't even hint around at it. Have you ever heard someone say, boy, if I can only tell you what so-and-so did? I can't tell you. But if you guess, it would be okay. It begins with an R, and it ends with a word that rhymes like this, and they go, oh, he did that? I didn't tell you, right? Is what I'm about to say confidential? Then don't say it. Is it true? If we don't know firsthand that it's true, we shouldn't repeat it. And if we're not sure, we better research it before it is shared with anybody else. Thirdly, is it necessary? Does it really accomplish any benefit for the person that you're talking to or the person that you're talking about? So many of our words are not necessary, but we fill up the silence. We've got to have something to say. Can't stand there and look at each other, right? Last one. Does it serve a wholesome purpose in the life of the person you're talking to? If we would remember those things, we would be far less guilty of tripping over our tongue and saying things that we should not say. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, Well, I'm not sure if it's unwholesome or not, okay? But only such a word as is good for edification, 
It's only good for building up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, there are times when something about someone needs to be shared and a very select group of hearers for the purpose of protecting something or someone. For example, um, we're going to start an ESL ministry, and somebody says, hey, I want to help, and somebody else says, well, you know, I know about this individual from another church they were at, and they got arrested for child abuse. But we need to know that so we don't place an innocent person in harm's way. But we are not just to spout out, spout out everybody's stuff and entertain those that we're talking to by saying things that are just not necessary. The man with godly character and conduct and a mindset on the truth of God's word does not gossip. Fifthly, he does not hurt others. Verse 3b, nor does evil to his neighbor. This is very simple and very self-explanatory. The one who knows God and dwells in his presence does not bring harm to other people. In what we say or in our actions, we are not to harm one another. If you are aware of bringing harm to another one, to another individual, either it's intentional or it's accidental. There's a couple of things that we need to do. One is that we need to make sure that we go back and we apologize to that individual and, if it's necessary, that we make restitution to that individual for something that we have done. We are not to be harmful to one another. Number six, the one who stands in God's presence, he does not receive gossip. Now, this is very difficult to get to in the casual reading of the word. In fact, in the NIV, it says, casts a slur. And it gives the idea that this individual is initiating or creating this reproach against someone. Verse 5c says, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So that word to take up has several different ways that it can be translated. And one of those ways, which in fact is the way that John Calvin prefers that it be understood, is that it is to receive. We are not to receive a reproach against a friend. Reproach means something unholy or something unbecoming. And you know what that word means. Christians are to be above reproach. We're we're to be above blame. There's not to be public sin or public disgrace that others know about. We are to have a life that is lived consistently with who we are. But just as we are not to speak against others by gossiping about them, we are not to receive the gossip presented to us from other people. It's not a mistranslation to say to initiate it. It's a repeat of the gossip. But I think it makes a lot of sense for the psalmist to complete the coin, if you will. One side of the coin is to say bad things about someone. The other side of that coin is to entertain and listen to bad things said about somebody else. So John Calvin believes that this is a rebuke against listening to or receiving unkind words, unwholesome words, unnecessary words about someone else without it being necessary. So we would rephrase it like this. It is as bad to give the gossip as it is to receive the gossip. You know, if you possess stolen property, you're just as guilty as the one who stole the property 
And it's the same idea here. We should not entertain gossip presented to us by other people. It makes us just as guilty as the gossiper. So what do you think about these three negative things that we just looked at very quickly? Doesn't gossip, doesn't hurt others, doesn't receive gossip. Some of you have been in more than one church in your life. Have you ever been aware of a church or relationships within the church that were destroyed in these three negative areas? Have you seen churches that were divided in such an obvious way? Have you seen people go a different way in the hall, not to pass by or come across somebody that they were at odds with? Yeah. The witness of Christ is incredibly damaged because the body of Christ can't get along and do what it's supposed to do and not do what it's not supposed to do. Gossip and harmful actions and entertaining gossip are cancer to church relationship. It destroys the body of Christ. Now we get to the next two set of positives here. Number seven, the one who stands in the presence of God, he honors other believers. Verse 4a, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. That word reprobate is a very strong word for a hardened sinner, for a clearly evil or wicked man, that in the Psalms of the Proverbs would be considered a scoffer. You are not to associate with that kind of individual in such a way that you are going to be influenced by him. You're not to pursue a friendship with an individual like that. You're not to seek his approval. You're not to seek a close relationship with an individual like that. But you're to see him as a potentially dangerous influence on your life, that hardened sinner, that one who mocks the cause of Christ, that one who is staunchly opposed to Jesus and a relationship with Him, we are to avoid that individual. This doesn't mean that we disassociate ourselves from the lost world, but our true friends, those that we associate with and spend our time with, are those who fear the Lord. We give preference and priority and honor to those who love the Lord in the same way that we do. You know, some of you might golf with unbelievers. You might fish with unbelievers. You might shop with unbelievers. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But our goal in those relationships should be to influence them for the gospel of Christ and to be incredibly careful that we don't allow their character and their conduct and their attitudes to instead shape our lives. You know, there is that adage in the New Testament that bad company corrupts good morals. It is far easier to be influenced by sinful people who are hardened in their sin than it is to influence those hardened people away from their sin. I think it's just a fact of life. We give preference and priority and honor to those who fear the Lord and they make up the bulk of the people that we spend our time with. Number eight, the last positive in this group, the one who stands in God's presence is the one who keeps His promise. Verse 4b, He swears to His own hurt and does not change. Now that's not easy to figure out. That's not easy to get to, is it? Uh, thankfully, there's a lot of really, really educated people who can explain this stuff to those of us who won't get this on our own. So that word swear is a synonymous word for oath or vow or a pledge, 
And so it's an oath or a pledge of commitment that we have made to someone else about something. It's that verbal contract, that verbal agreement that we've made. The idea is that our word is our commitment. And we are going to stand by our word even if circumstances change and by keeping our vow or our pledge or oath, it's going to bring some kind of harm to me. Let's say, for example, that you've got a car or a coin and you've agreed to sell that thing to someone else for a set price. And you've agreed to it. You've shaken hands on it. And you find out before you've actually completed the deal that that car, that coin, or that something else is worth far more than you ever thought it was worth. What do you do? Do you break your word? Do you break the vow or the oath? And say, I'm not going to sell that to you because I just found out it's far more valuable than I thought it was. Well, this is the idea here, is that the one who stands in God's presence will keep his pledge even if it means hurt or harm to me. In the Old Testament, when you made a vow or a pledge or an oath, you did so with your life. It was not something that you did haphazardly. You know, in, in the world of a child, it would be the triple dog dare. You triple dog dare somebody, you didn't break that or you were no longer a friend. So the idea here is that the one who stands in the presence of God keeps his promises even when it's going to hurt me to do that. Number nine, he does not take advantage of need. Verse 5a, he does not put out his money at interest. Interest here carries with it the idea of usury. There were great conditions placed in the Old Testament about the lending of money, and usury was what took place when somebody who was incredibly poor needed money, and the one who was able to lend them the money would charge them an exorbitant rate of interest, and thereby keeping them in a state of poverty. We have this thing going on in our world. Uh, what is it? Uh, it's, it's payday lending. You take your paycheck in, and they'll cash it for you on the spot, and they'll keep you know, 15, 20% of it. Or they'll give you an advance on that paycheck that's going to come and charge you 15, 20% interest. That's the kind of thing that takes advantage of those who are in great need. So we are not to take advantage of the poor who need our help. We are instead to help them, most especially as we look at the context of this. We're talking about within the family of God, those that we call our brothers and sisters in Christ. It does not mean that it's sinful to earn interest back on your loan. It's excluding an exorbitant amount of interest that would then take advantage of the person that is in need. Lastly, number 10, the last of these expectations, the second of the negatives, he does not prevent justice. Verse 5b, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. You know, in our world today, if you are completely without any money, you still have the right to have legal representation. Isn't that right? So imagine if you had no money and you had legal representation and the prosecutor was going to bribe your attorney so that you would be found guilty even if you were innocent. That's the idea here. In the Old Testament world, it was harsh. 
there were a lot of people who had no one to speak for them or stand for them or look out after them and protect them. And so the one who stands in the presence of God is not going to prevent justice from being done. He's not going to pervert justice for his personal gain. And so these are the ten expectations of those who claim to stand in the presence of God. Finally, our third section here, very, very briefly, the promise. The promise of the one who does these things is simply this, he stands secure. 5C, he who does these things will never be shaken. Whatever life may bring, whatever difficulty or hardship, those who walk with God will never be removed from his presence. In the Old Testament, that word moved or shaken means to be destroyed in such a way that there is a separation that can't be repaired. He's not talking about losing your salvation, but he's talking about this. Always being aware of the presence of God and not allowing the foundation of our life to be destroyed by the external influences of life and circumstance. Jesus would say that the wise man built his house on the rock and the foolish man built his, built his house on the sand. And this is the idea that we are building our house, our life, based on godly character and conduct and attitude that is centered in the truth. David would say in the next psalm, I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Can we say that today? Are you and I able to say that with honesty, with accuracy and clarity in our life? Are we living our lives in such a way that we're sending out mixed signals to those who are around us? I wonder how well our lives are built and reflect on the character of God and the conduct of the Beloved and an attitude set on His truth in such a way that all those other things fall into place. You know, it's much like the Ten Commandments. The first four relate to our relationship with God. The last six relate to how we're supposed to live. It's actually phrased similarly and possibly not a coincidence that there's ten just like there is in the Ten Commandments. Bow your heads and close your eyes as you think about your walk with God, as you think about being able to stand in the presence of God. Can you say, I will not be shaken? If so, praise the Lord. If not, I encourage you to call out to Him, to confess your sin to Him, to repent, and to make a new commitment, to honor Him, not just with your words, but with your very life. And I can promise you this, on the authority of God's Word, you will be blessed. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks that our salvation is rooted in the work of Christ, that we are permanently in your right hand, and no one, no thing can snatch us away from you. But that doesn't mean that we can just live our life as we please, ignorant of and devoid from any of the expectations that you have placed on us as your child, referring to you, relating to you as our Father and our God. God, would you expose our waywardness? Would you break up the fallow ground in our hearts in such a way that we are uncomfortable with the sin that we've allowed to be there?
would you, through the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit, work in our lives in such a way that our character and conduct and the very attitude of our heart would be set on you alone and be consistent with what you've called us to be. God, we know we can't do that apart from you. Draw us close to yourself so that we can grow in you and be who you've called us to be and to do what you've called us to do. We pray in Jesus' name.